0: Why don't we turn to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32. The scripture reads, You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is The Life of Herb Titus. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in you. And we thank you for this time that we have to remember a brother who ran the race, who finished well, whose love for you was demonstrated throughout his life, even in his old age, continuing on, not retiring to the green fields of little white balls, but, Lord, continuing to minister in the way you called him to do within the judiciary, within the judicial realm, pointing men to your law, and to your gospel. And Lord, I just ask and pray that you help me to set forth that which you've put on my heart to declare to this congregation this morning, that you use it for good in their lives, and that it would cause them to desire to serve you faithful in the earth with the days you've given them. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. May you be praised. Amen. Could be seated. So our text here, our text here... Reads, You shall rise before the gray headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. And this morning I want to honor an old man, one who served Christ faithfully, who impacted my life and gave me direction, who I could bounce thoughts off of, who provided good conversation and thinking, and a desire to be a good man, a good old man myself and finish the race faithful to our Lord. How many of you knew Herb Titus? Could you raise your hand? Wow, only three people. Four people. Herb Titus went to be with the Lord this past Sunday evening, um, a week ago today. And for those of you who did not know him, which is most of you, I want to acquaint you with him. So I want to begin by just giving a little bit about his life here. And then I want some other comments to make and a little bit of some of his writings I'd like to show you. Herbert W. Titus. He would have been a better W than W. By far. Herbert W. Titus was an American attorney, writer, and politician. He was a candidate for vice president of the United States in the 1996 presidential election, on the Constitution Party ticket. Herb was born in Baker City, Oregon, on October 17, 1937. He attended Baker Public Schools, where he graduated as co-valedictorian of the class of 1955. That was five years before I was even born. Four years later, he graduated from the University of Oregon, where he had served as student body president, He graduated cum laude from Harvard Law School in 1962. Herb earned a Bachelor of Science degree in political science from the University of Oregon. I love talking to political science majors. None of them know what they're actually going to use their degree for, but (laughs) I love talking to them because I love talking about civil government matters and politics. And God's used it again and again to point some of these young people to Christ and to his thinking regarding his word. So he earned this degree in political science from the University of Oregon, where he graduated Phi Beta Kappa. He was vice president of the freshman class at Oregon and holds a law degree from Harvard University, as I have already mentioned. He was an active member of the Virginia Bar till he died. Last week, he was an active member of the Virginia Bar Association and was admitted to practice before the United States Supreme Court, testified there numerous times, Did cases, I should say, there numerous times. The United States District Court of the Eastern District of Virginia, the United States Court of Federal Claims, and the United States Courts of Appeals for the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and District of Columbia and Federal Circuits. He was also admitted to practice in the Army Court of Criminal Appeals and the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. This had to do with the Michael New case. How many of you remember the Michael New case? wow, I am this old? (sighs) Like five of you? Herb was Michael New's lawyer. (laughs) Michael New was an American soldier who in 1996 was court-martialed because he refused to wear the UN insignia and follow the orders of of a foreign officer. When U.S. Army Specialist Michael New took an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States from its enemies and to uphold it, he meant exactly that. He had no idea that he would be asked to ignore that oath in order to serve the United Nations, wearing that insignia and following orders from a foreign UN commander. But That is exactly what happened. Michael New was serving in Germany when he was told that his unit was to be sent to Macedonia for UN peacekeeping operations and Macedonia would be expected to take directions from a foreign officer and wear UN garb. His mission Heading stated that his unit would act to, quote, make the UN presence known. And out of all these guys who were in the military at the time, only one said no. Isn't it funny how we love the prophets, (laughs) but we spit on the prophets of our day. It's common with men. Everybody loves to put up that little picture where everybody's saying, hi, Hitler to Hitler, except there's one guy in the photo, his arm isn't up. Yeah. And they all liked to do that until they were told to put masks on their face, and they all put masks on their face. And they all complied with Jojo the Circus Monkey mentality and went along to get along and didn't stand against things. This guy stood. His response, as reported in the news on October second, 1995, before he was court-martialed, quote, I have a problem with that. Wearing the insignia of being under the command of a foreign officer I have a problem with that because I am not U.N. I explained this to my lieutenant, and I told him, Sir, I don't think I should have to wear a U.N. armband or a U.N. beret. I'm listed in the U.S. Army. I am not a U.N. soldier. I have taken no vow to the U.N. I have taken an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States of America from enemies foreign and domestic. I regard the U.N. as a separate power. Where does my oath say that I have to wear a U.N. insignia? Unquote. This case went on for years and years and years. Herb Titus was his lawyer. After two years as a trial attorney and a special assistant United States attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice, Herb worked as a professor of law from 1964 to 1979 at the State Universities of Oklahoma, Colorado, and Oregon. Listen to me now. Herb was a leftist. Herb was a Marxist. If you ever heard his testimony or ever got to talk to him, he was totally, completely in that camp. He was active in various left-wing-based political causes during this period. He opposed the Vietnam War. He took legal action to support homosexual rights and abortion rights. That's who Herb Titus was. He also worked with attorneys and clients on a number of constitutional cases in his role as a regional director with the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. So he's an ACLU lawyer. And then Jesus comes on the scene. <laughs> you know Jesus radically transforms our lives, amen? <laughs> it's just like, turn everything upside down. And in 1975, Herb was converted to Christ while attending a Sunday school class with his wife, not even a church service, just a Sunday school class, probably one of the few good Sunday school things that ever happened, <laughs> was Herb Titus got saved there in a Sunday school class. Praise Christ. Herb decided to leave and go sit under Francis Schaefer in Switzerland for a year. You may remember Francis Schaeffer ran a Christian organization there in Switzerland called Brie. And many leftists and hippies and many former leftists and hippies during the 70s came there. And many of them were one to Christ, who weren't one to Christ before they went there. And the ones who were one to Christ were grounded in good thinking. Not the cheerio-friendly Christianity of America, but in true biblical Christianity. As you know, Francis Schaeffer had more impact on my life than any other churchman has had on my life. The number one book that had the most impact on my life was written by him called Death in the City, a book about the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. More impact on me than any other book that I've read. He is by far the most impactful Christian author on my life, followed by various of the Reconstructionist writers. He left his tenured position, Herb did, as a professor of law at the University of Oregon in 1979 to become a member of the charter faculty at the School of Law at Oral Roberts University. He began to teach law to Christians. And everywhere he went, it included the doctrine of interposition and the duty of the lesser magistrates to interpose. He began to learn this doctrine during the 80s and began to write about it then and in the 90s. Three years later, Herb moved to CBN University, later named Regent University, where he served for a total of 11 years, first as the founding dean of the School of Public Policy, and then as vice president for academic affairs. Starting in 1986, Herb became the founding dean of the College of Law and Government in Regent University. This was a big deal when they established this in 86, for those of you who are old enough to remember Things did not end well there due to Herb's faithfulness to God's law. When you reject God's law, as most all of Christianity has now, you are left in the sea of nowhere. You have thrown off objective truth and the objective standard to which all men and all governments of men are accountable. Because he stood true to God's law as the objective standard, he ran into huge conflict there at Regent University with the powers that be. All told, Herb taught constitutional law, common law, and other subjects at five different law schools for over 30 years. He's the author of a book entitled God, Man, and Law, the Biblical Principles. God, Man, and Law, the Biblical Principles. Herb was of counsel at the Virginia law firm of William J. Olson, specializing in constitutional law, legislative practice, appellate practice, election and campaign finance, and firearms law. you know anything about Herb and Bill and the men gathered with them, they tirelessly were always causing no small stir in the federal court system. Bill Olson is also a good friend of mine, by the way, whose conversations I enjoy every bit as much as those with Herb, perhaps even more. He, too, is an older man than me something which is getting harder for me to find these days. It is nice to know such men. We all need such men in our lives. Herb was the 1996 vice presidential nominee for the Constitution Party. I already said that. He ran with party founder Howard Phillips. Herb was also Judge Roy Moore's lawyer for his case dealing with the Ten Commandments in Alabama. How many of you remember that case? Many, many, many. Okay, good. So, that's good to know. Moore was the chief justice, and he had the Ten Commandments put in the rotunda of the Alabama Supreme Court building, which caused a massive battle with wicked men. Herb lived in Chesapeake, Virginia. He and his wife, Marilyn, have four children, and last I knew, 15 grandchildren. You may recall Herb was on VCY for five years, five days a week, back in the 90s, It was a great show that never really caught on with most people. And I believe the reason it didn't catch on is because most people just like to yell at the darkness and use it to adjust their prophecy charts. And Herb would actually talk about building and destroying the darkness through concrete action building with Christian thought, practice, Christ's rule impacting every area of life. So I learned long ago that most people just want to yell at the darkness. Not actually turn things to the rule of God and the earth. You know, he did teach us to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In our life, we meet older, faithful men who wrote about things God is showing us. Ever have that experience? God shows you things you never saw before, and then you learn about an older guy. When somebody tells you, hey, you sound like, or so-and-so said this, and then you seek the person out, good stuff. You read their writings from long before you understood such things, and they assure us we are on the right path. We see these older men, they're good men, and it assures us we're on the right path, and then we take things further than they did. King David talked about this in Psalm 119. He alluded to that fact, which I teach that to my children. You want to do better than I did as we continue to follow close to Christ. Amen? Build that within your home. Build that within your family. This is how God intends things. And may some of you, younger men and women, take things further than good men in my generation did. Every generation has some good men, even my sad generation. And you, younger men and women, need to take things further than we did And I've already seen it. I've already seen it. Where I see young people moving the ball down the field, taking things further, understanding things better, stepping up, building off of what they learned from us. About five years ago, I drove to Virginia with Jason to meet with Herb. We were going to have a discussion, and we did, about whether we should engage the court or ignore the court when a state government defies the court, should we ignore it, or should we engage it? I believed we should ignore it. Herb believed that we should engage it, and we talked about that, and it was a great discussion. And we also talked about a hybrid that included both, ignoring and engaging Herb was one of only 11 lawyers, and I know a lot of them, who I actually had profound respect for. Now there's only 10. In fact, now there's actually only nine because a young man, Zach Garris, is moving from Michigan. He's a lawyer down out west to Arizona, I believe. And he's going to quit his lawyering I'm praying he doesn't, that he's bivocational, that he goes into ministry there, but he still keeps his license and does his lawyering stuff in some capacity. When you know this few, you get to know each other, and you try to network. Next to my bed, there's a big pile of papers, always. And there's a big pile of books, always. Always often to the chagrin of my wife, Clara, they are there. (laughs) Making the place look not all that great. But here's what the deal is. Part of those big pile of papers are the writings of Herb Titus, because when I visited him out there in Virginia, he just kept piling up stuff he had written, giving it to me. And I know what he was doing. He said, there's a young man, I like what he's saying. He's written on this doctrine of lesser magistrate. I'm going to give this stuff to him. And he did. And I'm thankful for it. So I have all that stuff. And I want don't have any time to go through all what he wrote, but I did want to read just a little bit to you. This is from 1996 something he wrote in 1996 entitled, get this, Interposition. (laughs) Interposition. So I never got to read this until three years after my book was written, but it was one of those things that hit you, and you're like, "Ah, we're on the right path. He's a good man. He served Christ faithfully all these years. And he knew and taught these things long before I did. To people who were going into law, Astounding. He's sitting here talking about judicial supremacy. You know how much I hate judicial supremacy. It's uh, something that needs to be excoriated from our land. And he's talking about how the conservatives always try to kiss up to the federal judiciary. (laughs) He's ticked off about it, which I can appreciate. And he says, The judges are not going to change course, however, so long as the opposition is limited to editorial pot shots. Because the conservatives were telling everybody, calm down, you know. We work with the court. You should be thankful for the good things you do get said by them. The judges are not going to change course, however, so long as the opposition is limited editorial pot shots, nor will the judges alter their jurisprudence if opposition is limited to litigation in the courtroom. Every good lawyer I know has said that. We can only do so much in the court we're an officer of the court. If the other branches of government don't step up to the plate, Matt, talking about the legislative and executive, and uphold their oath to the Constitution, we're all going to be taken over the cliff by the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court into immorality and lawlessness. Nor will the judges alter their jurisprudence if opposition is limited to litigation in the courtroom. Rather, the judges will not change unless and until they are challenged politically. The question is how to do that short of revolution. The answer is to restore to American political life the doctrine of interposition. Amen. And that's what I tell every magistrate I meet with. You must defy the judiciary. You're duty-bound to defy them, when they impugn or contradict the Constitution, not to mention when they spit upon the law of God and in the face of Christ. He went on to define interposition. I like his definition. To interpose means to put oneself between parties at variance with one another. The word presupposes that the one who intervenes has the lawful authority to do so. That is, the interposer is not a busybody sticking his nose into a conflict where he does not belong. At the same time, the one with authority to intervene does not have the lawful power to resolve the conflict. That power resides elsewhere, but its exercise will be greatly influenced by the action taken by the interposer. And that is massively important. As the lesser magistrates stand in defiance, it impacts the other magistrates, It checks their lawlessness. It reminds them that their authority has limits. This guy's writing about all this back in 1996. Matt is like, oh, I'm loving this. I'm loving this. He goes on and talks about the Stamp Act. He says this time the Parliament, he goes all through a bunch about the Stamp Act. He says this time because there were tons of acts of interposition during the Stamp Act. You should read about them. He said this time, talking about the end of things, as Parliament kept bringing on more taxes as we got closer to the war, this time the Parliament refused to relent, sending troops to enforce the law. This act precipitated the war for independence. The Americans fought that war, claiming that the colonial legislatures possessed the authority of lower civil magistrates to interpose on behalf of the people against tyranny. Thus, the Declaration of Independence was issued by a Congress of those legislative representatives and contained a list of violations of law justifying the taking up of arms. He said this, With respect to the United States Constitution, then, the officers of the several states were bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. Pursuant to this oath of office, they became lower civil magistrates in the national government with authority to interpose themselves between the Congress, the President, or the federal courts and the people whenever in their independent judgment any one or more of the national authorities violated the Constitution. That's absolutely right. The states are not to be mere quizlings for the federal government. They're not to merely be implementation centers of immoral and unjust federal law, policy, and court opinion. They are rather to see they've impugned the Constitution or they've impugned the law of God, whatever the case may be, or both, and their duty is to interpose against their evil. He then talks about 1798 and the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions then talks about slavery and the interposition that went on there, including what went on here in Milwaukee. He says this, in 1987, Attorney General Edwin Meese. How many of you know who Edwin Meese was? Edwin Meese attempted to rescue the doctrine of interposition from judicial supremacy in a speech at Tulane Law School where he had the courage to state that a court decision, quote, does not establish a supreme law of the land that is binding on all persons and all parts of government, unquote. That's absolutely right, what Meese said. He goes on and says, Meese's comments, however, generated a storm of protests ranging from Professor Lawrence Tribe's claim that Meese's view creates, quote, a grave threat to the rule of law, (laughs) unquote, to Professor Gerald Gunther's warning that it would cause the, quote, system to break down. That's the same arguments today that they had 40 years ago. Oh, we'll have chaos. No, you're creating the chaos with this cabal you've created called SCOTUS. These men are reigning in your evil, your lawlessness, who stand in interposition? And this is how our founders intended it to happen. That there would be these battles of jurisdiction, not blithe compliance, to one branch of government called the Supreme Court. Never, ever, did they intend that. I've spent hours upon days reading about that stuff to make sure I was true on that. He's absolutely right. They wanted a true federalism, which has multiple levels of government, multiple branches on each level. So if any one branch or branches began to play the tyrant, another branch or branches would check them. Amen? goes on in Titus writes, he says, Herb writes, he says, Nevertheless, Mises' appeal has not gone away. Nor has the doctrine of interposition been forgotten in a recent lecture series at the Albany Law School Minnesota. Associate Professor Michael Stokes Paulson has called for the re-evaluation of the doctrine as one to liberate the original Constitution from the, quote, small elite of judges, law professors, and lawyers, unquote, who have stolen the Constitution from the people. Amen. That's exactly right. And I have numerous letters sitting in the file at my office from professors around this country who use the little book I wrote, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate, in their classes where they teach law. These are law professors or history professors. And here we have it way back in 1987. <laughs> this a, we pick up the ball, we continue on, we tell men truth, amen? Here's some of the other things Herb wrote, the Constitution is not what the Supreme Court says it is, rather the Constitution is what the Constitution says it is. That's right. And every magistrate has a duty to decide whether it's being upheld or impugned. I've gone over before how the U.S. Supreme Court has rewritten the Constitution, how they think they're the final arbiters of all constitutional questions, and they are not. And until the other branches stop them, their lawlessness will know no bounds. He said Blackstone posited his legal world upon the premise that both the created world and the laws governing that world were objective reality, objective truth, an objective standard. He said not only does the doctrine of judicial supremacy perpetuate judicial error, but it stands in the way of opportunity to reinforce and to clarify a judicial opinion that is correct. And that's because most people, when they see things that the Supreme Court does, they think they should obey no matter what, because that's what they've been taught. People have this odd, wrong idea that since the Supreme Court ruled something right one time, they must go along with what the court has decreed when it has written something wrong every other time. (laughs) They have this wrong idea that since the Supreme Court ruled something right one time, they must go along with what the court has agreed when it written something wrong another time, and that is utter nonsense. It is as nonsensical as saying that when a governor interposes, we must go along with it. A governor's interposition can be legitimate and lawful or it can be lawless and wrong. And we have historical examples of both in our nation, We should oppose lawless, unconstitutional opinions of the Supreme Court just as we should oppose a governor whose inner position is lawless and or unconstitutional. We should not give the Supreme Court a pass when they do evil just because at some point they did good. And that's what most people do. That's what they do. They don't get a pass. When they do good, we say good. When they do bad, we stand against them. We don't give them a pass in their evil. Think. We call them the actions of any civil government, whether legislative, executive, or judicial, as we see them, whether good or evil, constitutional or unconstitutional, just or unjust, one at a time. No one gets a pass for evil just because they did good on another occasion. We don't sit by and watch the preborn get butchered for decades, just because they made a proper opinion somewhere else. These are the things he wrote about. And he covered so many topics. He has one whole thing just on autonomy. Phenomenal. He said here, he said, it is not court precedent which should control, it is the Constitution. why did this little old pastor, Tony Spell, win his case down in... Louisiana the other week because he didn't use a law firm which they're all the Christian law firms are always looking for technicalities to try to win on rather than principle God's law and word and or the Constitution he had Judge Roy Moore be his representative be his lawyer Tony Spell did totally principled case based on the word, law of God and the Constitution and they won without any strings attached. Not you can meet out in the parking lot. Remember when all the legal groups, oh, we won. You can meet in the parking lot. Yeah, have fun with that. Now I want to end by giving you a brief exhortation regarding the Lord and his mercy when it comes to death. A brief exhortation regarding the Lord and his mercy when it comes to death. You do realize we're all going to die. And some of you are going to die. Okay? I know everybody wants to deny that fact. I remember I went to an Ozzy Osbourne concert (laughs) to preach the gospel one time. And when you're out near the entrance area, like nobody wanted to listen to you. Everybody's mocking, acting lewd, saying filthy or bizarre things. But then I went by the Portageons. And when I got over to the Portageons, there's like 25 Portageons there, maybe more, and this long line of people, and they're all quiet. Why? Because they, rem- they were reminded of their mortality. They had to take a leak. Their mortality. <laughs> I am a human being. I will die. I'm not Superman. Like I can feel, like when Ozzy and the other guys are there, right? So I stood by the port johns and preached the Word of God <laughs> to a quiet crowd. <laughs> Amen. So we are all going to die. There are four things the Lord uses to prepare us for death, Prepares us, pre- to prepare us to cross over the river when one dies of old age. That's what I'm talking about when one dies of old age. Not speaking of a young man who dies a soldier's death or a martyr's death here. The Lord uses different things to prepare our hearts for those matters. But in old age I speak of four things. There's more, but four I'd like to note. Number one is this. Listen to me now. As we age, we see the wickedness of this world and we tire of it. We experience less of an attachment to this place, more of a desire to go be with him. I remember when I was young, people would say, I can't wait to see Jesus. You know, it was that happy, gleeful form of Christianity that if you didn't have a smile on your face and acted happy like people thought, you know, you weren't really a Christian. Just like... (sighs) Anyway, every time I heard someone say that, I can't wait till I get... We get out of here and we get to see the Lord because everybody thought Jesus was coming back because 1988 was right around the corner. And so that meant he had to come back by then because Israel had become a nation in 1948. And so, yeah, it's a, one generation is 40 years. And books written about it, millionaires made from writing the books. Every time I heard that stuff, I thought to myself, and I felt bad. I felt unspiritual. So I was like, I don't, I don't want to go see him right now. I, I want to get married. I want to experience a wife. I want to have kids. I want to serve Christ in the earth. You know, confront the wicked. You know, that type of thing. But as you age, you do begin to let this place go. And That's just one part of the puzzle. That's just one. Number two, physical ailments. The body ages, some suffer ailments worse than others, but we all age. Most, not all, feel less of an attachment here as various ailments take hold as we get older. And this is true. I've been with many people when they die, or they're dying, over months. And the physical ailments can be difficult. And it's a mercy from God. It's It's a mercy from him to help us let go of here and to move on, to be with him. One of my little ailments as I've gotten older is I can't smell. And um, so I can't smell. It has its pros and its cons. If there was one of the five senses you wanted to lose, I suppose you would pick that one, right? I mean, I wouldn't want to give up sight, right? Sight, no. Wouldn't want to give that up. I wouldn't want to give up hearing. I mean, there's nothing like the ominous approach of winter. Heard through the sound of rustling leaves on a windy, cold fall morning. You know what I mean? Nothing like it. I wouldn't want me. not be able to hear my teenage girls laugh giddily. Not talk to my grandchildren and hear their little voices and No. Touch, I wouldn't want to give that up. The touch of my hand on my wife's face when I hold her dear, I wouldn't want to give that up. No, wouldn't give that up. I did have to give up some of the taste because you lose three-fifths of that when you lose your smell. Another bad thing is you lose your long-term memory, and I can attest you do. (laughs) You do. So I guess if you had to pick one, that'd be the one to pick. But I'll tell you, it's something that helps you let go. It's something that lessens your attachment to here. So you're more willing to go there, to be with him. This, too, is a mercy from God. And the third thing is we increasingly know more people who have crossed over the river. The older we get, the more we know. I talk to people in their 70s and 80s, and I've had many of them tell me, you know, I spend most of my time either visiting a hospital or a funeral home because everybody in their peer group is either sick or dying. So we increasingly know more people have crossed over the river. We actually look forward to seeing them with him there to join with the saints who've crossed over. This too causes us to lessen our attachment to this place. When we were singing and worshiping this morning, I was brought to tears as I was there because I'm thinking of Herb. He's there. <laughs> He's there. As we're worshiping here, they're there. <laughs> worshiping him there. You know what I'm saying? And that's powerful stuff that one day we'll get to join with them all, with him there. It's a mercy. It's all mercy from God to help prepare us for departure. I've been with many of the saints when they are old and ready to die, and they talk of it long before they actually go, years, months, days, hours before they go. They speak of it and look forward to it. And it's all mercy from the Lord. And the fourth reason, the fourth mercy, the good thing is, we know him. And we want to be with him. Amen. We know him, and we want to be with him. And Herb Titus knew him. Jesus rescued Herb from his sin. He rescued him from a life of arrogance and rebellion and his Marxism and pride and leftist thought. Christ gave him forgiveness of sin and purpose of life to live to glorify the Lord. To bring every thought captive to Christ and to his rule. Amen. And now he's crossed over the river. He's finished the race, faithful to our Lord, something we see too little of in Christian men these days. And so we honor him. Our text says, You shall rise before the gray headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. And it's good to honor a faithful man. Psalm 92, verses 13 through 15, says those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. I thought the courts of our God were fitting, given he was a lawyer. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. Amen. Amen. And Herb did. He kept serving Christ till he couldn't know more. Revelation, chapter 14, verse 13 says, I'll read that to you. Revelation, chapter 14, verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Amen? Listen, brothers and sisters. There are Marxists in academia, government, and media who are hell-bent on finishing America off and transforming it into a complete totalitarian hell. They're ambitious. They may accomplish it, given the fat, ignorant state of most Americans, including the vast majority of Christians. You must learn the things Herb wrote of from a biblical, lawful, and historical view. You must teach truth to your children, truth about the history of America, and the goodness of thought that Christian men brought to men and to the governments of men. Men rallied around Christ and Christianity throughout the West because they saw the goodness of his rule. Despicable men and enemies of Christ have turned that all on its head, and only ignorant and immoral men, self-absorbed men, drunk on wealth, ease, and entertainment, and that would be most Americans, fail to see what lies ahead for Western man as they are turned from his rule. And if you want a little bit of a taste of it, look at cultures which still don't have Christ and look at the cultures that Christ and Christianity transformed. I'm of Cornish, Welsh descent. I'm one side of my family. The Druids were huge. And Christian men hazarded their lives and brought the gospel and God's law and word to the men of that island, the men of that land, Amen. And won them to Christ. And that should be our greatest desire. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you and we praise you that we've had this time to remember the life of Herb Titus. We thank you that he's a brother who ran the race well who's with you now, whose love for you was demonstrated in word and in deed, one who you radically transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit and made a trophy of your grace in your kingdom in your throne room, oh God. Lord, we know where things are headed as men reject your rule and the rebellion. We can read the history of cultures and nations and see where it all ends. But, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to you in the midst of the rebellion that is going on, both in word and in deed, that we would not underestimate the importance of our obedience and our faithfulness to you in this hour and in these days. I pray and ask, O Lord, that you use each one here powerfully through your Holy Spirit, To point men to your son. To talk to the governments of men about your word and law. Lord, may we be faithful and true to you, I pray. With the days you've allotted to us, we thank you that you've redeemed us. Our lives were nothing. Going nowhere, headed no place. Until you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, transformed us. Out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, your dear son, Jesus. And now we live our lives in service to you, glorifying you. May we keep our faces low to the ground and seek you so that you might use us as you see fit. To the glory of your name, may we beseech you and pursue you and seek you as to what you would have for us. We thank and praise you, O God, for your redemption. Be glorified through each one here, I ask, in Christ Jesus' holy name. Amen. May Christ be praised.